The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 1 this morning. Romans chapter 8, you'll see the page numbers on the screen behind me. Also, just wanted to let you know, uh, we forgot to mention that in your bulletin, you're going to see an insert for small groups. If you are not part of a small group yet, uh, we wanted to let you know, here's a great opportunity for you to get involved in small groups. They're a vital part of Jacobswell Church's ministry. So please fill that out. Let us know where you'd like to be plugged in. And we're also offering a new small group uh, this spring, Divorce Care. And so if that, if you've been part, if you've experienced the pain, I should say it, My brother has experienced the pain two times of divorce. This is an opportunity for you to be ministered to through a great program that's put on by the same people who produce Grief Share. So uh, Divorce Care begins, I think it's Thursdays this next semester. So mark that if you're interested. If you're not interested, if you're already in a small group and that doesn't apply to you, go ahead and put that that card in the seat uh, pocket in front of you, and that way we can use it again next week for sign-ups as well. So again, Romans 8, uh, starting in verse 1. Is where we'll be. I have been here in Green Bay, back in Green Bay since seminary for about four years. It's kind of funny because four years ago today, I preached my first sermon at Jacob's Wall. So it's four years. And uh, I, I love where we live. We live on 352 Orchard Lane in Alloway. Um, and over the past few years of living on Orchard Lane, we've seen God's fruit in many of the things that have happened in our neighborhood. We are now friends with all of the people that surround our house. Love that. Our kids now have other kids to hang out with in the neighborhood. Love that. The houses in our neighborhood are beautiful. People take good care of their lawns in our neighborhood, so it's beautiful. No one's subwoofer is banging at all hours of the night. There are no loud fights or parties that involve the police being called. It's beautiful. It's a safe and secure place where all is right with the world, right? Wrong. This year, on each end of our block, up the hill and down the hill, there have been invisible signs that say all is not right. On one end, on the top of the hill, there's a large, beautiful home that served as a group home, a place of security for lower-functioning disadvantaged individuals, and it was shut down this year because it was discovered that those individuals were tragically being taken advantage of by their house parents. On the other end of the block, a peaceful family home is in upheaval as a father who should be one of the safest people in a child's life is being charged with violent crimes against one of his own children. The safe and secure place on the outside looks good, but inside the walls, things are not as they seem. I think all of us, to some degree, want to believe we can find security apart from Christ. Maybe it's in our neighborhood. Maybe it's in our financial status. Maybe it's in our job. Maybe it's in our performance. Maybe it's in our marriage. We all believe that to some degree we can find security apart from Jesus. But I wanted us to see this neighborhood, my neighborhood, as a window into each of our lives. 
a window where I would encourage us to look from the inside of the house or the outside of the house and be equally discouraged. Those of us who look from the outside of the window of this neighborhood might be feeling a sense of discomfort that the security we thought we had maybe is not there. So what might you do to calm that discomfort? For some of us neighbors, we might find security by just comparing backgrounds and saying, well, I've never done something like that. For some of us neighbors, we might find security by just locking our doors or being very careful of who we talk to in our neighborhood. But those of us who look from the inside of the house, those of us offenders, might be feeling a sense of unbearable shame that our struggles, no matter how much we tried to muscle through getting a grip on our addiction or our personal battles, they're unconquerable. For some of us offenders, we look at our rap sheet of sin and we look to the judge, the Lord, and say, you got me. I'm totally guilty. For some of us offenders, we see our crimes against God and against man and say, There is no way that I should ever deserve to see the light of day again. Well, Paul has bad news for us neighbors and good news for us offenders in this hope-giving, assurance-granting passage in the book of Romans. A few weeks back, Pastor Dan walked us through the last part of Romans 7 and shared with us the war with our sinful flesh that wages within each one of us. The Apostle Paul says, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate, for I know that nothing good in my flesh dwells in me. And Paul, at the end of chapter 7, he makes a bold statement that's partnered with a desperate question. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? I hate to get too graphic with y'all, but for the sake of illustration, I want to paint what some believe Paul has in mind when he uses the expression, body of death. And if you don't like that I use this illustration, today's my last day at Jacob's Well, so you never have to hear from me again. There's some debate as to whether this is indeed what Paul had in mind when he said, who will rescue me from this body of death? But either way, I think it does paint a picture of the severity of consequence to all of us living according to the flesh. The Romans were notorious for creating consequences to law-breaking that would make both a spectacle of the offender and also give stark warning to the citizens of the day to take heed, don't you dare commit this crime. See, for example, crucifixion. Legend has it that one of the punishments or condemnations for murder, specifically patricide, which is the killing of someone's father, was that the murderer had to have their dead victim strapped to them. They were then released outside the city with the reminder of the crime, the body of death on their back. And in the heat of the sun, the body of death they carried would decay and eventually lead to the death of the criminal himself through infection and disease. 
Who will rescue me from this body of death takes on a more serious meaning, doesn't it? Sounds hideous. Sounds awful. And sounds like a desperate reminder of how destructive sin really is. I would say that these verses today in Romans 8 serve to provide an answer to who will rescue me from this body of death. And they give us the most lasting and permanent of security. This is God's word. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh. But in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is God's Word, and it is true. Let's pray. Father, as we come to Your Word, as we submit to Your Word, as we hear from you through your word, Father, we pray that you would remind us what it means to be in Christ Jesus. The benefits that we have received, those of us who by faith, through grace, have received the gift of Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray for those who are hearing this message, hearing from your word this morning, who are not yet in Christ, Lord. Would you remind them of the terror of their situation and bring them to the safety and security that is only found in Jesus Christ? Father, we thank you for your word and help me to handle it rightly and carefully. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if we are indeed safe and secure in Christ, if that's what I'm proposing, if that's what Paul's proposing, what does it look like to walk freely according to his spirit? How in the world do we live this new way of life in the spirit? Paul gives us 
three encouragements. And the first is this. Walk on Christ's already laid path of freedom. The second is this. Depend solely upon the Holy Spirit's lead. And the third is destroy our old clothes and display Christ's righteousness. First, walk on his already laid path of freedom. Verses 1 to 4. Paul marries his question, who will rescue me from this body of death with this simple answer in verse 1. A verse that has no verbs in it. It just reads like an official pronouncement. No condemnation at all right now for those in Christ. No condemnation at all right now for those in Christ. Katakrima, the Greek word for condemnation here, is probably referring not as much to the guilty verdict as it is the punishment that fits the crime. And in Christ Jesus, no punishment. Anyone who's placed their hope, their trust, their everything in the person and work of Jesus Christ has this pronouncement made of them because Christ has forged a path of freedom on our behalf. How do we see this depicted in these verses? Well, verse 2 says that the law of the spirit of life, a new law, a law that is based on undeserved blessing and favor, a law that is based on grace, that this law has given us Freedom from the law of sin and death. And what is the law of sin and death? I believe Paul is referring to what he speaks of earlier in chapter 7 in verse 21 when he says, I find it to be a law or a regular thing or a practice that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And then in verse 23 when he says, I see in my body, in my members, another law waging war and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my body. When Paul refers to law here, I I don't believe he's referring to the law of God given to us by Moses. This is instead the general way or pattern in which sin operates, like a principle that governs and guides our way of living. And to live by the flesh is basically a pattern of life that says, not God, not God, me, not God. And it's like a well-worn path. In all of us, there is a power in our sinful flesh that no matter how much we try to eliminate it, we continue to go after the things that are opposed to God. For those of us who are familiar with the 12 steps of AA, What is the first step? We admitted that we were powerless over our addiction. That our lives had become unmanageable. Paul is wanting his listeners to recognize that as much as you think you can clean yourselves up or get yourself fixed or straighten up your act, the law of sin and death will never allow that to happen. It will enslave and overpower you Every time. And he says in verse 3 that God sent his son for sin. God has done what cleaning up your life could never do. God has done what straightening up your act could never do. He sent his son as a sin offering. To those in the Jewish world, the sin offering was specifically given for unintentional sins. 
doing what we do not want to do. And God the Father, the good, good Father, sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, the passage says. And when you hear that phrase, the likeness of sinful flesh, a couple things may come to mind. So let's unpack it. You may be thinking, does likeness of sinful flesh mean that Jesus wasn't actually in the flesh and more just like a likeness or a ghost-like appearance of flesh? Or does likeness of sinful flesh mean that Jesus had sin in him? It's confusing. But to both, the answer is a resounding no way. Likeness of sinful flesh means this. Since human flesh was the way in which sin came into the world, Jesus came in human flesh, human skin, human body, which in every other man but Jesus was corrupted with this law of sin and death. So skin, body, flesh would need to be the manner or the vehicle by which God would use to get us out of this predicament. And the end of verse 3 says, He condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus' flesh, though perfect, would be torn and pierced to condemn the flesh of every other human being living in that flesh. The righteous requirement of the law, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, flesh for flesh, was given through his sacrifice of flesh on the cross. Our body of death was put on him, on his flesh. I had a wise friend once tell me that the very thing that hurts you in life, God often uses to heal you. If you've been wounded by the church, typically God will give you a church in which you can heal. If you've been abused by a father or a mother or a brother or a sister, God often sends a fatherly or motherly or sisterly or brotherly person in your life to bring you healing. Our flesh, our self-centered, me-driven human natures have been healed by His flesh, His God-centered, servant-driven human nature. So practically, how is Paul encouraging that we walk on this already laid path of freedom. Friends, I say this very carefully, but very, very confidently. Stop trying to save yourself. Stop trying to be a good boy or a good girl. Stop. Stop trying to set specific benchmarks of godliness that give you confidence whether or not you're good enough to be accepted by God. What are those benchmarks that you have in your mind that either give you a false sense of security that you're okay or leave you feeling like a hopeless sense of failure? If I could never struggle with a lustful thought again, it must mean I'm truly a believer. Hear Paul's proclamation over your life in Christ. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, pornography addicts. 
If I could never again raise my voice in anger to my kids, then I must truly be a Christ follower. Hear Paul's proclamation over your life in Christ. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus' abusive parents. If I could always tell the truth and say what I mean and mean what I say, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, all of us liars and manipulators. If we can say that of ourselves in light of our sinful deeds, that there is no condemnation, then we truly understand the gospel. Then we're truly walking on his already laid path of freedom and not on our own self-made path of never quite enough righteousness. I tell you what, confession, I don't do this. I believe there are certain struggles that until I'm rid of them and only until I'm rid of them will it mean that God has adopted me as his own. And when I struggle with that specific struggle, guess what happens? I go down into a slump of doubt and hopelessness because I'm waiting to arrive as a believer. But Paul wants us to marry chapter 7 with chapter 8. Do you, addict, take Christ to be your lawfully wedded husband? I do. Do you, abuser, adulterer, thief, murderer, liar, take Christ to be your lawfully wedded husband? I do. This is walking according to the law of the Spirit. This is living a life of freedom, dependent not upon us making it up to God for what we've done, but rather dependent upon His flesh-paid grace. Paul not only reminds us to walk in the path of freedom already laid for us, he wants us to depend solely on the Holy Spirit's lead. How do we lean and depend on the Holy Spirit? It has to do with the expression that you'll find in verses 5 to 8 of setting one's mind on the things of the Spirit. For the thinkers in the congregation, setting one's mind on the Spirit sounds great. That's great. That's my forte. I can think things about God. For the feelers in the congregation, you're thinking, that sounds way too academic. And just to think thoughts of God, well, what about the heart? For both thinkers and feelers, good news. Setting the mind involves the thoughts, but not only the thoughts. Setting the mind involves our emotions, but not emotions alone. Setting the mind has to do with our desires, our affections. That which absorbs not just our thoughts, but our interests and our time and everything as well. That which has to do not just with our emotions, but from the source from which those emotions flow. Paul says in verse 5, Those who live according to the flesh, again, the self-centered, self-justified path of life, they set their minds or become absorbed with the things of the flesh. What are, what are those things? Paul lays them out in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 20. He says, and it'll be on the screen behind me, he says that the works or things of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, 
idolatry, sorcery, enmity, which is like extreme hatred, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. What would you say is the common denominator to each of these works? For sure, one of the common denominators is that it's not God. We're not going after God with those things. But the other thing that's evident is that in each of those, there's a promise that this will fulfill you. There's a promise that this will be enough for you. And that promise is also attached to a lie that says, and it's going to cost you nothing. It's going to cost you nothing. You'll be fine. I would love to have a conversation with my neighbors up and down the hill from me. Just ask them, did you receive what was promised? Did it live up to everything you hoped it would? And I'm certain their answer would be no, no way. Did it cost you nothing? Was no one hurt? Was your life preserved? And I'm certain based on the consequences of their action, the answer is also no. How much of our time, our energies, our thoughts, our emotions are on these things, the things of the flesh? Paul in verse 6 gives a stark warning to say that at the end of these empty promises is death. Because to set our mind on these things is to keep our minds, as verse 7 says, away from God. Setting the mind on the Spirit, on the other hand, is according to verse 7, life and peace. Life meaning life forever, eternal life. And peace meaning fellowship with God and the enjoyment of everything that a life with God offers. This is what God wants for believers. A life that William Barclay writes is spirit-controlled and a heart that is Christ-occupied. Our mindset is the core direction or affection either toward God or against God. Setting the mind on the Spirit is allowing that which resides in our hearts of believers to have exclusive access, exclusive access to our thoughts, to our emotions, to our attitudes, to our behaviors. Spirit, you have full right to take residence here. Waking up each day in the morning and saying to the Lord, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Melt me, mold me, fill me, use me. And the way in which you would know the Spirit of Christ is leading your life is also found in Galatians chapter 5. When Paul lists the fruit which comes from this mindset of the believer. And there are these. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Do you see the Lord in those things? I want to caution you that when you see those things, warning, do not, I repeat, do not make this a list of shoulds. I should love my husband more. I should be more joyful in my job. I should be more patient with my kids. I should be more self-controlled with my wandering eyes or my spending or my use of time. 
These should type of thoughts are only going to lead you back to the flesh that doesn't do what it wants to do. Because when we say, I should be that, we're depending on our own lead. Shoulds or New Year's resolutions or willpower are not how setting one's mind on the Spirit works. Instead, setting one's mind on the Spirit involves asking that God would show us Jesus. Show us Jesus. Prayers that might look like this. In Christ Jesus, you, Father, are pleased with me. Lead me, Spirit, to find all of my pleasure in Christ and what he's given to me. Maybe in the midst of grief, instead of moving on, setting one's mind on the Spirit involves drenching oneself with tears and with scriptures that promises that every tear will be wiped away and that God is making all things new even in the midst of your suffering. Maybe it's temptation. In the midst of temptation, instead of saying, oh, just got to muscle through this, setting one's mind on the Spirit is remembering that Christ withstood every temptation that was thrown him in the wilderness. And through faith in him, Christ in us, and us in him, we can say, lead us through this wilderness, Jesus. I can't get out myself. And in our evangelism, instead of saying in our minds, which we do all the time, oh, I should share the gospel more. Praying, Father, while I was a miserable, filthy sinner, you died for me. Spirit, would you lead people to me so I can talk about my faith and have the privilege of giving them a taste of what you've done in my life? It's very different. Finally, as we walk on Christ's already laid path of freedom and we depend solely on the Holy Spirit's lead, we are to remember who we are by destroying our old clothes and displaying Christ's righteousness. This is who God promised that his people would finally be. You are not a dead people. You are a resurrected people. In verse 9, Paul assures his readers that they are in the Spirit. And for those of us who read the end of verse 9 that says, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, and think, oh, is Paul saying that to give me pause or question? Like, does, does he really reside in me? No. Paul is saying, in essence, you are in the Spirit as, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Just as we are clothed in Christ's perfection, Christ's perfection is also found in us. Take the remaining verses, which include the word if, and if you will for me, replace them with the word as. It's much more reassuring, which is actually the intent of this passage, to give you assurance and confidence and security. Verse 10, instead of if Christ is in you, as Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Verse 11, as the spirit of him, not if the spirit of him, but as the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Verse 13, as you live according to the flesh, 
you will die. But as you live according to the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The reason I think this is important is because we see those words if and begin to believe that God's dwelling in us and us in Him is conditional. Like there's something that we could do, some horrible thing that we could do that could nullify what Christ has already done. We need to remember that we are resurrected, fully immortal beings through the work of Jesus Christ. The spirit of the Father who can bring dead people back to life resides in you, and it's not going anywhere. Leon Morris writes, The Father doesn't pay a short visit with you. He makes his home in you forever. So how should this then affect us? Paul writes at the end of this passage with an imperative. Put to death the deeds of the body. Remember the illustration of the Roman sentence for murder of carrying on our backs the dead body of our victim? Putting to death the deeds of the body means actively, daily, cutting off, killing, getting rid of completely, crucifying our fallen fleshly nature. Get off of me! This is not saying that our physical body is to be seen as bad. That's masochism. That's not what this is. What Paul is saying is what the body does that needs to be put off. John Stott writes that every use of our body, our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our hands, our feet, which serve ourselves instead of God and neighbor, is to be actively put to death. You remember what happened to Bruce Banner when he would turn into the Hulk? What happened to his clothes? They would just tear up. They just become these little scraps. They didn't belong on the Hulk. They were of no use. They just kind of hung off him. They just needed to be torn off. And we who are in the Spirit are actively involved in this process. We have to smell the smell of that putrid, decomposing body and pull it off and call it what it is and hate it. We're not going to pretend there's a dead body on our back and not smell it. We're going to say, yuck, off, no more, I'm done. And almost simultaneous to us throwing off these old death-infused clothes, we're also setting our hearts and minds on the things that give life. Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good, think on these things instead. We're actively, through the power of the Holy Spirit and not your own, we're thinking on these things. A way to gauge this is just to ask yourself this question. What does the world promise that will give me life? What does the world say you deserve the answer that comes to our minds probably points us to the garments that need to be ripped off. They lead to death. The opposite question is true as well. What does the world say we should never need? What does the world say would make your life miserable? 
the answer that comes to our mind might point us to the righteous robes of Christ. Paul encourages us to set our minds, our hearts, our affections on those things. The things that the world says is death, but God promises brings life. So instead of being Elvis impersonators, Paul calls us to be Jesus impersonators by wearing what the king wore throughout his ministry here on earth. Not sequins, but he wore sacrifice of self. He wore service of others, and he wore worship of the only true God. I'll close with this. The other day, I was working on this sermon at one of the local libraries. And the library closed at 5 o'clock, and it was about 4.50, so I was starting to pack up my stuff, and I headed out to my car in the below zero, as you know, wind chill, biting, bitter, bitter cold temperatures. And I stuck the key in the ignition, and... Nothing. Not even a click. I quickly dialed up my sister and asked, hey, could, Jack, could you come and pick me up? She said she was on her way, but it might be a little bit. Okay. So I made my way back to the library's breezeway entrance, knowing it was just about five, and they were closing at any moment. One of the staff members came into the breezeway to lock the doors, and I, I just explained to my predicament, hey, hey man, my, my sister's coming to pick me up in a few minutes since my battery's dead. I'm just hanging out here just to keep warm until she gets here, and I was taken aback by his response. You'll need to step outside. Respecting his authority as a government-paid official, I made my way out the doors and into the bitter, bitter cold. No problem. My Patagonia grace coat will keep me warm for sure. Five minutes later, my body starting to shiver. The staff member opens the door briefly to say, if your ride isn't coming, there's a service station down the road. No worries. My car will keep me warm and out of the windshield. Get in my car. Five minutes later, my teeth are chattering and my fingers are numbing. I was struck by the reality that without modern-day conveniences left out in this cold, it wouldn't be too long before the elements would eat me alive. Five minutes later, better keep moving my body. Sitting is doing me no good. So I popped the hood, got the jumper cables ready, red on positive, black on engine block, and I dropped the other side of the cables to the ground, which, to my surprise, sent a set of sparks outward. The battery's not dead. He was alive. And so could I be. Brothers and sisters in Christ, on my final Sunday here on staff at Jacob's Well, may I exhort you to remember that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is active and alive in you. Depend not on the power of your pastor's preaching or shepherding or music leading or singing. They will at times fail you. Depend not on the power of the people around you to keep you going. They will at some point forget you. Depend not on the power of the programs that are generated through the ministry of Jacob's well. They will at times fall short. Depend on the life-giving, 
righteousness-granting lead of the Spirit of God, whose power carried the death of your sin on his back as he hung on the cross and brought that dead man back to life. Depend on that very power, friends, and you will live. Let's pray. Father, I know I don't practice what I preach. I know I believe, Father, that there is something I need to be done with in order to truly be yours. So I thank you for this verse which reminds us that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for those who are battling and struggling through difficult circumstances, even addiction, Father, I pray that you would remind them of your pronouncement over them, that they might find freedom in Christ and not in their own self-willed efforts. Father, I pray for us to set our minds on your Spirit, to not see the fruits of the Spirit as a list of shoulds, but to see the fruit of the Spirit as resulting from listening to your lead and seeing Jesus in what we do and say. And Father, help us to tear off the clothes that are dead to us. Those rags that serve us no purpose, help us to throw them off and to instead allow your righteousness, which is in us and which is covering us, to be on display to a dark world who needs it desperately. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.